This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to Job chapter 19. And as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that we find ourselves in the middle of a conversation. It's a bit of a heated discussion between a faithful man named Job and his three friends who had come to provide him with counsel as after you know, hearing about the tragedies that had befallen their friend. And I'll remind you, it was all the way back in the beginning of this book. That's when we learned about the days when Satan attacked Job's family, his flocks, and his physical health. And after hearing about the pain and the suffering of their friend Job, well, that's when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they decided to go and provide Job with the counsel and the correction that they believed he needed. It was in our study last week when we considered the second round of accusations which were made by Bildad. This included a word of warning about the final destination of those who are wicked. And after assuring Job that he would be brought before the king of terrors, we now find Job continuing to uh, respond to these guys and now he's maintaining his integrity while simultaneously trying to understand the real reason for why the Lord had decided to destroy his life or so he thought. Well, now before we consider the content of Job's defense here, let's take a moment to consider just a few questions regarding the suffering of Job and the suffering that we all tend to experience from one time to another. And and with all this in mind, we should ask, is all suffering evil? Is all suffering evil? Or is there suffering that is good? With this question in mind, I want to consider for a moment the pain of childbirth. I've heard it's dreadful. I I don't know, but... uh, But the, the, the pain of childbirth is, in fact, an effect of the fall. And yet, at the same time... The temporal suffering of childbirth is also good because it's part of the process by which a beautiful baby enters the world. And so is the suffering that occurs during the pain of childbirth evil? In light of this example, we can see then that there is some suffering that we might consider good suffering or as Charlie Brown might say, good grief. Now, with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, you know, how can we know if the suffering we're experiencing is good or evil? Because I'm guessing if I took an informal survey tonight, you know, and if I were to ask, who thinks that the suffering they're enduring tonight is evil? You know, anybody that's suffering tonight would be like, yeah, it's evil. But is it? How can we know? With this question of mine, I can't help but to think about the cross of Christ. You know, according to Isaiah, it was God's good pleasure. Think about this. It was God's good pleasure to crush Christ Jesus and cause him grief there in his passion. And the reason why was due to the fact that the suffering of our Savior was necessary for securing the salvation of sinners. Was that suffering evil? Or was it good suffering? And in light of the cross, we can certainly say that there is some suffering that is good. 
What about our lives? How do we know if the things we're suffering are, are good or evil? How do we know if we're suffering because we live in a fallen world and, and, and bad things just happen? Or if we're suffering for the sake of our Savior and for good purposes? Without debate, this is a difficult question to answer. And, and, and the reason why is this, that our suffering could be both. It could be a both-and situation. It could be both the effects of the fall and bad things just happen. And it could also be the path of our perfection predetermined by our Savior. Much like Job, listen, the Lord might even allow the enemy to attack our own lives because he has a perfect plan in the pain and the suffering that he's allowing us to endure. That being the case, we'd all do well to learn this lesson from the life of Job so that we might avoid the problematic perspective that leads us to believe that all pain is evil and all suffering is just some sort of unjust punishment that comes from God. Knowing that this was Job's perspective, let's turn our attention now to the 19th chapter of Job. I want to begin reading here at verse 1. Here we learn that Job answered, he's answering Bildad, remember, Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Now here in the beginning of this chapter we find Job, he's presenting his second defense against the unfounded accusations of Bildad. And it's here in these verses where he accuses Bildad of tormenting him not just once, not just twice, but ten times. Now, as far as we know, this was Bildad's second round of accusations. It's possible that maybe this is the tenth round, and there's just some of it that isn't recorded. That, that is possible. But as far as we know, this was just the second round of accusations, and so when Job accuses him of tormenting him ten times, he may have been using the number ten according to its mystical meaning, which speaks of a completed cycle. If that's the case, then Job was assuring Bildad here that his accusations were complete. His accusations were complete, and there was no need for more. He's like, please be done with your cycle of false accusations. Job also insists here that Bildad seems to have no shame in the way that he was lodging a full round of false accusations against him. Notice again there in the middle of verse 3, here again Job declares, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Now that word wronged, it's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who deal wrongly with another person. And in light of this definition, Job was clearly accusing Bildad of wrongly reproaching him with unfounded accusations. And while Job was convinced that his friends were tormenting him with false accusations, he was also wondering if God was truly the one who had sent his friends to torment him in this way. If so, then Job was also wrestling with the possibility that God was actually the one who was wronging him. With this in mind, let's pick up our study of Job's response to Bildad here. It's found here in chapter 19. Look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here Job declares, And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, 
Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's working through a concerning conundrum here. And in order to simplify his line of reasoning, Job seems to be thinking here that if God is the one who sent these so-called friends to, to use his pain and suffering as evidence of some secret sin in his life, then God was also guilty of wronging him because he wasn't engaging in these secret sins. And just to be clear about this, listen, the word wronged, which is found there in the middle of verse 6, this is actually another Hebrew word. And, and this Hebrew word was actually used of those who deal perversely or, or they falsify some information in order to deprive that person of true justice. And so according to Job here, let's consider the if-then reasoning here. He's saying if his friends were truly representing the mind and the plan of God, well then God was also guilty of perverting justice by surrounding him with a net of wrongdoers. Now just to be clear, Job wasn't accusing God of doing something wrong. No, instead he was accusing his friends of misrepresenting the mind of God. Or more simply put, Job was assuring Bildad that if their accusations had actually come from God, well, then the Lord must be a liar as well because their accusations were false. And so I think that he's actually presenting the argument that you guys are wrong because God would never be a wrongdoer. But as we consider the way that Job was you know, exposing the wrongdoing of his friends, I just want to take a moment to address the arguments of those who tend to go down this line of reasoning, but they kind of take a, uh, the, the, the wrong turn in Albuquerque, so to speak. Uh, there, there, you see, there are many people in the world today who see the failures of God's people and they see those failures as evidence that God must also be guilty of wrongdoing. While Job is saying, hey, God's not going to be, you know, the one who does wrong, and so therefore you guys are wrong. These people, on the other hand, say, well, God's people do wrong things, therefore God must be wrong. The argument typically goes something like this. You know, if the God of the Bible really is able to change people's lives, then why are so many Christians still living in sin? Or, or I, could, I just can't believe in the God of the Bible because I've known Christians who have hurt me. And because I know Christians who have hurt me, then God must be bad. Or, or I refuse to go to church because the Christians I've known are hypocrites. Or, or the church is filled with so many hypocrites, then, then why would I go? And to that I say, there's always room for one more. Come on, come on and join us. <clears throat> but simply put, listen, these people have judged the perfection of God based on the imperfections of people. And it's a false argument. It's a false equivocation. They accuse God of wrongdoing because believers oftentimes fail to do what is right. They accuse God of wrongdoing because they see believers oftentimes failing to walk by faith. And if this sounds like an argument that you wrestle with, if, if you tend to see a believer doing something wrong, maybe something wrong to you, and then you get mad at God, let's be careful with that. Because without God, we have no standard for de determining the difference between right and wrong. Listen, the imperfections of Christians are not evidence of an imperfect God. Therefore, it's irrational to accuse God of wrongdoing because those who try to follow him are still struggling in sin. 
Not only that, but listen, it's also wrong to accuse God of injustice simply because we've been treated unfairly. Why would we accuse God of being wrong because we were treated unfairly by somebody else? And in order to explain my point here, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 19. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 7, here uh, Job goes on to declare here, here he says, uh, if I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my ways so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's wrestling again with his situation, which left him with these feelings of hopelessness. And, you know, he sort of felt like the Lord had fenced him in so that he couldn't escape his suffering. He tried to escape this way, and the Lord fenced him in on that side. And he tried to escape the other way, and the Lord fenced him in on the other side. And, and so he, he, he can't seem to find any escape from all of the suffering. Not only that, but he's also convinced that the Lord had taken his crown and his glory And just to be clear about this, I want to remind you that it's in Proverbs chapter 17 where King Solomon declares, children's children are the crown of old men and the glory of children is their father. From this we can see then that Job is probably talking about his kids and his grandkids. You know, his his children had died in in that storm that toppled the the house on top of, of, of his kids and and he's saying, hey, you, you, you took my crown because I'm not going to have any grandkids. And his glory, well, this was the privilege of raising his offspring and becoming a grandpa and seeing how the, his kids had perished in that storm. You know, Job was convinced that the Lord was the one who had stripped him of his glory and had taken the crown from his head. Not only that, but when Job insisted that, that the Lord was breaking him down on every side, well, he's probably referring to the, 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 uh, the, the destruction that he saw in all the different directions that he could look. You know, his, his livestock had been stolen. This was, you know, his financial, uh, this had to deal with his finances and his income. His servants were killed by Sabian raiders. Others were carried off, off as captives. His body was covered in boils. His friends were falsely accusing him of sin. Every direction that he looked in, he was being broken down. And what's even worse is that his heart was filled with hopelessness. And the reason why, well, it's because he he cried out to the Lord just for a little justice. And there was no justice to be found. You know, he wanted wanted the criminals who had come and stolen his livestock to to get caught and and prosecuted and, and his livestock returned, but nope. All that was gone. He wanted justice from the Lord and he cried out for justice and at least within his time frame he wasn't seeing any justice. Just to be clear, the word justice, which is found there at the end of verse 7, it's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of a judicial decision which results in a a just judgment or, or a righteous and just decision. And with this in mind, you know, we can see that Job was crying out to the Lord for righteous justice 
only to then realize that the Lord was allowing his enemies to prevail against him. To better grasp the hopelessness that filled Job's heart, I want to continue to consider Job's perspective here. And so if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 19. We'll begin reading at verse 11. Here Job declares, He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. Now, here in these verses, we find Job. He's continuing to vent his feelings about his situation. And according to his assessment of his situation, well, he was certain that he was enduring now the wrath of God. He says, he's kindled his wrath against me. The reason for his feelings was based on his belief that the Lord was treating him like an enemy. And the evidence of his opinion stemmed from the self-centered perspective, which led him to, to believe that the armies of the Lord had encamped all around his tent. Now think about that for a moment. Job was certain that he was enduring the wrath of God. He looked in every direction, and he found himself surrounded by those who were apparently out to get him. And with this as his perspective, we can see how easy it is for those who find themselves in the midst of suffering to begin to skew the situation with self-centered paranoia. And I get it, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. But that really wasn't the case with Job here. In order to further explain my point, I want to remind you of something that King David wrote in the 23rd Psalm. It's there where he declares, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no, no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. I want to stop right there because, you know, as we consider the, the lyrical content of this beautiful psalm, we must not fail to realize that there are times when our good shepherd places us at the table where we are surrounded by those who we might consider to be our enemies. And what this means is that the believer who is surrounded by their enemies might also be sitting in the center of the Lord's perfect will. I guess it just depends on your perspective, huh? You can find yourself surrounded by your enemies and think, God's against me, this is his wrath. He hates me. Or you can look at that and say, I'm right where God wants me to be. Enjoying a nice meal, surrounded by my enemies. Because if you look beyond the enemies, guess who's surrounding them? The armies of the Lord. So what are we worried about? As we take another look at this psalm, we see that David rejoiced in knowing that there are times when the path of righteousness runs straight through the valley of the shadow of death. You ever think about that? He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. 
though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The path of righteousness will at times run straight through the valley of the shadow of death. And what this means is that there are times when our good shepherd is actually guiding us through that dark valley so that in the midst of the suffering, we might learn to trust in the rod and in the staff of our good shepherd. You might be a sheep that just loves to get out on their own and you know, forge your own path and do your own thing. And you know, we, we see it all the time. Christians who, they don't really want to be led by the rod or the staff. The staff is how the shepherd gently leads us. The rod, the rod is when we need correction, right? And there are times when the Lord is leading us on the path of righteousness because this is the path that helps to sanctify us and we see it's dark ahead, it's scary down there. We don't really want to sacrifice this. We don't really want to give up that. We don't want to go through that suffering. And so we try to go another route because we don't really trust the shepherd. And that's where Job finds himself. He's, he's surrounded by suffering. He's, he's enduring all of these things and all the while thinking, God hates me. When in reality, the good shepherd loves him and knows exactly what Job needs. Listen, you might think you know what you need. But I can assure you, we are all very bad at figuring it out. We need a good shepherd. And sometimes he's going to use the staff and sometimes he's going to use the rod and sometimes he's going to take us beside the still waters and sometimes he's going to take us into the valley of the shadow of death. Are you going to trust him? If you currently find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, don't stress out. If you're currently surrounded by your enemies on every side, I encourage you to remember that this might be exactly where God wants you as he helps you to learn how to lean on him. And as he allows us to suffer the trials and the troubles of this world, it's important for us to remember that the Lord knows how to deliver us from every temptation. I like the way that the Apostle Peter explained it. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, it's verses 9 through 11, where Peter declares this. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of, the, out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So, so listen, God knows how to protect you even when you're at the table surrounded by your enemies, and he knows how to reserve those enemies for everlasting punishment if they don't repent. So what are we worried about? And what are we complaining about? Just because it might seem like God is allowing injustice to prevail today, and it does seem like that, does it not? No? Good, you don't watch the news. Just because it seems like injustice is prevailing today, and we cry out for justice, and there is no justice, 
That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan to establish everlasting justice in the future. This, this is the argument of the atheist who says, well, because God is allowing evil to exist, then either he doesn't care to solve the problem or he can't. So, so that's it? Just this false dichotomy? No third option? No, there's coming a day when he will solve the problem of injustice? Of course he will. That's what he's promised. So the atheist, in their argument with the problem of evil, they're just falling short of realizing that just because God isn't fixing injustice today doesn't mean he's not going to in the future. You better believe he's going to. And if you've been crying out for justice and it seems like the Lord is ignoring your prayers, I encourage you to remember that there's coming a day when the Lord will judge those who chose to embrace the wickedness of this world, all the while rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, until that day comes, we do well to alleviate our own pain and suffering by spending less time focusing on ourselves. And with this as the goal, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 19. You would look with me there, beginning at verse 13. Here Job declares, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. Now, men, just take a note here and get, get, some, get, get some scope or something, but... I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Now, here in these verses, we, we find the lyrics of another Morrissey song, and <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But we find Job here, he's once again overwhelmed by his self centered perspective. He's overwhelmed by his self centered perspective. As a matter of fact, it's here in these 10 verses where Job uses the words me and my 31 times. Not only that, but he also uses the pronoun I seven times. So it's me, my, I, me, my, I, as he shares the grief that he was suffering at the hands of of the friends and family members who were now well, not, not, <clears throat> not so close to him anymore. Listen, if, if you've got boils oozing from all of your body, I'm not going to get close to you either. So just, I'll pray for you from afar. But seriously, you know, the, like Job is so hurt. He's hurt. Why? Because me, my I, me, my I, me, myself, and I. And listen, you know, Job has reason to mourn here. He's, he's suffered a lot, right? 
But so, so did his wife. His wife lost the same amount of kids, right? What about his surviving servants who probably lost family members and friends at the hands of those Sabian raiders? They had reason to mourn too, right? Rather than realizing that all of the survivors in his house and under his employment had reason to mourn, Job only seems to be concerned about his own situation rather than being the leader that rises up and says, how can I comfort those in my household? He's sitting in a, in a little pity party, you know, singing the song, Me, Myself, and I. And it's in similar fashion that there are those in the church today who are so focused on their own suffering that they fail to spend a single second even thinking about the possible suffering of others. And what's even worse is is that there are some who are so traumatized by the pain of the past and they just can't let go of it that they're unable to serve the Lord today. And the reason why is because they're still living in the past. They're still hurt by something that happened in the past. And they can't turn their focus on on the finish line of faith because they're still looking in the rearview mirror at all the bad things that ever happened to them. And every conversation they have always comes back to what they've suffered. Every dialogue ends up about their own personal pain and their own personal trauma without giving any consideration for the fact that we've all suffered. Every single one of us here tonight has suffered in some way. And so why is your suffering more important than anybody else's? Someone else tries to share their story and their suffering. Are you the person that has to one-up them? Well, you think that's bad. Listen to what happened to me. And then this happened to me. And me, me, me. And me, myself, and I. And, And then look how bad my life is. Your life isn't that bad. My life is bad. How many times have you one-upped somebody with your story by saying, well, man, that, you know, that's horrible, but listen, I, I've had it way worse than you. There was this time when me, I was by myself with me, and I was with I and my and me, myself, and here, and my situation is much worse than yours and me. And you gotta, what about, I hear about you, but what about me? What about my suffering? If that's you, calm down. I get it. We, we've all suffered. And, and listen, there, there are times where we need to commiserate with one another, and there are ways that we have to mourn with those who mourn. But if that's all you ever think about, and if that's all you ever talk about, it's time to get your perspective straightened out and, and put your focus back on the finish line of faith. If you're the person who always loves to bring every conversation back to your pain and your suffering, I encourage you to remember that it's time to get our eyes off of ourself because that's typically where we continue our suffering is by just continuing to replay the suffering over and over and over and over again in our minds. So we're just tormenting ourselves. You might be in the same situation as Job who just really didn't understand that God was allowing him to suffer for a righteous reason. Maybe God allowed you to suffer for a righteous reason and you still can't make sense of that. And if that's the case, then the chances are you might be complaining about something that you suffered, but who are you complaining against? If it was the Lord's 
plan and the Lord's purpose to allow you to suffer in that way, and then you complain about the suffering, who are you complaining against? The person who caused you to suffer or the Lord? With that, we should consider the outcome of Job's complaints. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 19. Look with me there at verse 23. Here Job declares, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were posted on Facebook. Oh, sorry. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Job was so certain that his complaints were correct that he wanted his words engraved in stone. He felt so justified about his grievances that he wished his words were inscribed in a book with lead ink that would cause brain damage for anybody that ate the chips. And he got his wish. The book of Job has been around for 4,000 years. People have been reading the words of Job for 4,000 years. People have been realizing that Job really wasn't that smart for 4,000 years because his words were recorded. People have been learning life's lessons from the skewed perspective of Job for 4,000 years. And so here's one lesson we can learn from the book of Job. Be careful what you wish for. He wished his words would be recorded, and here they are. And, and in the moment when he said this, I have no doubt that Job felt completely justified in every word that he had uttered, and yet I can't help but to wonder how he felt about his perspective after his interview with the Lord. We'll get there. But we'll quickly watch God show, we'll, we'll see God show up and say, who is this who darkens words, you know, uh, without knowledge. And, and, and Job does what? Puts his hand over his mouth. Whoops. There's 37 chapters of complaints against the Lord. Here they are in the book. Can you imagine being Job post-interview with God and then reading your book and just, oh, oh, I wish these words weren't recorded. With this, I want to remind you that the, that the things we post on social media, they're effectively etched in a rock, a digital rock. They're there till the end of the world. And I get it, snapshot, it disappears. No, it's there. And then people do screenshots as well, right? And then they save that stuff and bring it back out later. Everything we post, everything we upload to the interweb, it's there till the end of the world. And yeah, this includes the things we posted when we were upset and when we wrote things that we really didn't mean or our intention was just to hurt the person that we're writing about and these sorts of things. And it's so sad that so many arguments and, and so many false accusations are made online and, and, and that information is just there. And I, I guarantee that a lot of things that we may have posted five, ten years ago 
we're going to come across it in another five, ten years if the Lord tarries. It's probably going to be like Job reading his own book, post-interview with God saying, oh, man, shouldn't have written that. Trust me when I tell you that social media is not the place to air your grievances. Whether we're talking about your spouse or your you know, best friend or your pastor or... I was going to say or Jeremy, but no, you can, you can write anything you want about Jeremy. <laughs> be careful with what you put out there and be careful with, with the words that come out of your mouth. I like the way that James addresses this in James chapter 3. There he declares, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Without debate, we all need help when it comes to controlling the tongue. And and maybe we have a weakness with, with joking. Maybe we have a weakness when it comes to gossip. Maybe we have a weakness, you know, when it comes to you know, using curse words or whatever the case is. We, we all need help. We all need help when it comes to controlling the tongue. Whether you lash out at your kids or at your spouse or whatever the case, we all need help controlling the tongue. And, and if you would say to me right now, well, I'm this old and I'm not going to change, so, so God can't change you? Is that what you're saying? You, you're too far along in life for an all-powerful God to change you? How little do you think of God? With the help of God, we can tame the tongue. God help me. And while we might feel justified in a moment of anger to say those things that just come out of the mouth, listen, it's in those, those moments of passionate anger, that's, that, that's probably the best time for us to just put our hand over our mouth before we vent our feelings and frustrations. And so with that, let's ask the Lord to help us to tame our tongue and let's not wish for all those words to be recorded in some way that lasts forever. forever. Let's ask the Lord to help us to use our mouths in a way that glorifies him as we learn to proclaim the praises of the Lord. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Job refocuses his faith here in the final uh, uh, sections of, of this chapter. So look with me there at Job chapter 19. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 25. Here Job goes on to declare, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I, sh- I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's now proclaiming the praises of our Savior, and it's almost like in the midst of his venting, he had this aha moment that that there is hope. He was feeling hopeless. He thinks that God is his enemy. But then next thing you know, he just breaks forth in this song of praise about the way our Redeemer is living. Even though his body was covered in weeping boils, Job was still looking forward to the day when our Redeemer would stand upon this earth. 
And though his family and his finances were in a state of ruin, his heart still yearned for the day when he would see his Redeemer face to face. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Titus chapter 2. It's there in verses 11 through 14 where he declares, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Here we find Paul reminding his readers that those who trust in Jesus Christ are the special people of the Lord. That's right, Christian, you're special. We are his special people because we've been redeemed by his blood. And Paul is directing the attention of Titus and the people that Titus was leading. He's directing their attention to the day when our Redeemer will return. And while it's true that born-again believers are going to suffer as we're being sanctified on the path of purity here in this world, it's still also true that our Redeemer lives. Are you suffering tonight? If so, our Redeemer lives. Do you find yourself in the middle of pain and, and turmoil and tragedy and trial? Our Redeemer still lives. And there's coming a day when he's going to return with those who trust in him. Therefore, no matter what you're enduring today, our suffering will soon be over. Our pain is just but a moment. And, and as pain gives, gives way to the resurrection, it's at that point in time when we receive a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory as we receive the rewards of our Redeemer. That being the case, let's learn to endure the trials and troubles of today as we look forward and, and refocus our faith on the day when we will rule and reign with our Redeemer. At the same time, we should also warn others about the everlasting suffering which the Lord will pour out on the unrepentant. And with this as the focus, let's consider the warning that Job presents here in, in uh, the final two verses of this chapter. Look with me there at verse 28. There Job declares, If you should say... How shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job, he's now warning his friends about the wrath of God. They had, or it was Bildad last week, who warned Job that he was going to be paraded before the king of terrors. And now Job is saying, oh no, I'm going to stand with my redeemer. Because he had placed his faith in the promised Messiah. But he turns to his friends and says, you be careful because judgment day is coming. The return of our Redeemer will result in the vindication of those who trust in him. And at the same time, the return of our Redeemer will also result in everlasting wrath 
for those who rejected him. Don't take my word for it. This is precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 25. It's verse 46 where he says this. He talks of those who will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into everlasting life. The Greek word for everlasting, it's used twice here. And and, and what this means then is that as long as there is everlasting life for believers, there is also everlasting punishment for unbelievers. The annihilationists want to say that, well, everlasting punishment, it's not forever. They eventually stop existing. Or universalism, everybody eventually gets saved and these sorts of things. But Jesus said that some will be sent away into everlasting punishment and that will last the same amount of time as those who enjoy everlasting life. It's everlasting separation. And you better believe that there's coming a day when the sheep will enter into everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. But the goats, which is a reference to those who chose with their own free will, to reject the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, those goats will then be sent away into everlasting punishment where they will suffer the wrath of God forevermore. Now, if you want to take issue with that doctrine, your issue is with God. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I don't know better than God. Look at me. What do I know? I I can't teach you something different because I don't know better than God. And if it's God's decision to send away those who reject Jesus Christ into everlasting torment, that's his decision. And if you think that's unjust, what standard would you use? What objective standard for determining right from wrong will you use to argue against the standard of right and wrong? Those who reject our Redeemer will suffer the consequences. Why? Because God wants to send them to hell? No. But because they rejected the only free ride they had into heaven. If you choose to reject the free ride into heaven, which was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, then there's only one one place left for you. We would do well to warn people of this. Not only that, but we would do well to recognize that the Lord is allowing us to experience temporary suffering in this world so that we recognize that we don't want everlasting suffering. Isn't that a good reason for suffering? Like if I had a little device that would just give you like a one-second experience of hell, and and I could just go to people and say, here's what hell's going to be like, zap, and just give them like one second of, of the torment. How fast do you think they would choose Jesus Christ? And yet, isn't that essentially what God is doing by allowing us to experience suffering? Helping us to understand we don't want it. And we certainly don't want an unlimited quantity of it. As we consider the way in which Job was suffering here, remember, this is what provided him with an audience of friends that lived so far away. They heard about his suffering, what did they do? They came to him. They tried to counsel him. But this really provided him with the opportunity of reminding them that there's a redeemer. He lives. He's going to be on the earth one day. 
And if you reject him, there's everlasting punishment. All of that was because God allowed Satan to bring suffering to Job. It gave Job the opportunity to evangelize his friends. And in similar fashion, I have no doubt that there are times when the Lord allows us to suffer so that we can then be a witness to the unbelievers who are within our sphere of influence. And with that being the case, we must not fail to realize that the Lord has a perfect purpose in the pain and the suffering that he allows. So rather than grumbling about God, rather than grumble about you know, God allowing us to suffer and these sorts of things, let's just remember that he actually wants to use us in the midst of our trials and troubles so that we might help the unbelievers that he wants to save to escape everlasting suffering as we provide them with the gospel message of grace. Let's use the opportunities that we have, even the times of suffering, to reach out to the unbelievers in our sphere of influence so that we can help them to trust in Jesus Christ and so that they might be redeemed by our Redeemer who lives. Amen? Let's pray.